Welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in Hemonk through innovative digital media. Today, we hear from several leading experts discussing the next questions in the treatment and management of hematological malignancies. First, we hear from Sagar Loniel of Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University on the next steps in treatment and management of multiple myeloma. The next questions in multiple myeloma is really a sort of a fun talk to put together because you get to get your crystal ball out and really think about where are we going to be in the next few years and how are the studies we're doing now going to really influence that current state of affairs. You know, the challenge, as I mentioned, um, has been that we have so many new drugs and new targets. How do we put them together? Are the, do we really start to risk stratify or think about precision medicine? And how do, we, how do we sequence drugs in a way that allows us to really only have to worry about that first response because we can either control disease for a really long period of time with continuous maintenance, or we can maybe even cure patients with the right sequence of targeted agents early on. Uh, and so those kinds of talks are, I think, really exciting. And uh, they, they do provide unique opportunities to really try and distill where the field is now and think about the future. Next, Serdan Vertisvec of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center evaluates the next steps in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Immediate need was described in need for therapies after JAK inhibitors, improving what the JAK inhibitors do, anemia issues. I would say we also need to find medications that would improve the platelets. The low platelets is another problem. We don't have any medications for that. But these are more of the immediate needs. If we talk about higher uh, level of uh, significance, then obviously we come to time to progression or time to next therapy or even survival as the end point of the study. And we actually have a study, one of those that I described in mental studies, the telomerase inhibitor that is going to be studied for prolongation of life in patients that fail JAK inhibitor. We're going to be randomizing patients between imetrosat and whatever the doctor wants to do and see whether imetrosat makes people live longer. So we are moving up. So where I see the future, focusing on a life extension, quality of life obviously is the paramount, but then making people live longer. And on the other hand, if you go from the end stage part to the early stage part, a studies that would be possibly, and we don't have any of that yet, addressing the issue of progression to fibrotic advanced disease. So patients that are not so sick or not sick at all to prevent disease from progressing and becoming clinically relevant. I'm looking forward to this type of studies in the near future. Next up, Loretta Nastupil of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center discusses her views on the future of the lymphoma field. In lymphoma, we see some interesting um, evolution with the treatment landscape. And so in large cell lymphoma, we are seeing more and more therapies approved in the relapse setting. So in addition to CAR T-cell therapy, uh, there are a number of allogeneic CARs that are under exploration uh, with the idea that you might have improved access, more rapid access 
to younger, potentially fitter T cells to build these allocars in. So we've seen safety data thus far reported and it looks to be quite promising. Uh, the real question that remains is the durability of an allogeneic car and whether or not the efficacy will hold up in terms of what we've seen with the autologous cars, but improving access uh, is would be a tremendous um, move forward given that CAR T-cell therapy is currently underutilized in the relapsed uh, large cell lymphoma space. And if the efficacy and safety profiles, again, appear to be an advantage over what we see with the autologous cars that may also allow for uh, administration outside of your traditional transplant centers and, again, have better penetration into the community sites. In addition to the development in the car space, there are a number of other targeted agents, and I've mentioned tapacitumab, which is a naked CD19 antibody. It looks to be very promising in combination with lenalidomide for these transplant ineligible patients or patients that may not currently be amenable to referral to an academic center uh, for CAR T-cell therapy. With median overall survival of approximately 30 months reported from the LMINE study, again, that's a substantial improvement to what we've seen historically uh, with standard options as reported by the Scholar 1 trial where most of these patients were expecting an overall survival of six months. So again, that's a dramatic improvement. The next wave that's anticipated to hit the treatment landscape are the bispecific antibodies. Uh, so these are antibodies that are targeting generally uh, surface antigens uh, such as CD20 and engaging T cells uh, with targets such as CD3. There are a number of agents that look to be very promising, uh, but the durability of these responses with these single agents looks to be about 30 to 40%, which again, can potentially compare quite favorably to what has been reported with CAR T-cell therapy, and again, might address the issues with uh, logistical challenges associated with the CAR T's with improved access, particularly in community settings or resource-limited settings. So we're eagerly anticipating uh, some of the maturing trial data with these bispecific agents. Um, and then lastly, again, as we have more and more treatment options for these patients, there are questions as to the proper sequencing of these treatments, particularly as some of them may have similar targets. And so as we gather more information and we'll have more real world evidence emerging, we may be able to address what is the most appropriate sequencing of treatment, uh, particularly in the large cell lymphoma space. So a number of exciting options uh, in the pipeline, uh, none of which are chemotherapy-based, which, again, in my opinion, is a notable improvement over the last 30 to 40 years. We also spoke to Amir Zaidan of Yale University and Yale Cancer Center, who explored the next questions in acute myeloid leukemia. One of my presentations in the SOHO meeting is focusing on the next questions for acute myeloid leukemia. Um, there has been a tremendous, I think, uh, improvement in, in the field over the last uh, three years. Um, since 2017, we had uh, nine drugs approved specifically for acute myeloid leukemia indications in the U.S. The last one to be approved, uh, which was really a few days ago, is the oral version of azacitidine or CC486, which was specifically approved uh, for older patients who undergo uh, intensive treatment with their induction plus minus consolidation and cannot continue on, on those therapies or not proceeding to bone marrow transplantation. The use of uh, maintenance uh, 
coral is a cytidine compared to placebo has been shown to prolong overall survival in this patient population and therefore has been approved by by the FDA for use in, in, the, in, in the USA. So I think uh, uh, between these nine agents that are approved, uh, there's still, I think, a lot to be done in, uh, in trying to further improve the outcomes of our patients. Uh, I think w- one important aspect is increasing the rate of treatment of patients with acute myeloid leukemia. So we actually, we and others have done uh, population-based studies looking at the rates of treatment of patients in, in the U.S. And when you look at patients who are 65 years and older, and that's the bulk of MDS patients, really, because the median age at diagnosis is 68. So it's a disease of older people, really. Um, many of the patients who are 65 years and older are not being treated. Almost as many as 40% don't receive any kind of therapy. And this is data as recent as 2015. So basically, almost 10 years after the introduction of hypomethylating agents, were, which were specifically approved for this patient population. Um, of course, the use of hypomethylating agents by themselves have been uh, suboptimal. The median overall survival is in the range of seven to eight months. So clearly, I think that was one of the reasons why many of the patients were not being treated because the outcomes with hypomethylating agents as single agents were not particularly um, great. So I think we are going in a direction where more older patients are going to be treated and hopefully that will improve the outcomes. There is increasing availability of oral agents and several of those oral agents have been approved as monotherapies, such as giltritinib for FLT3 mutated refractory relapse AML with the FLT3 mutation or the IDH inhibitors. I think the next um, uh, cycle of studies are going to focus on different combinations. How do you actually combine two drugs and potentially three drugs? Now we have azacitidine, venetoclast, also as a platform. A lot of the upcoming trials are going to add other agents to this doublet, basically. All these agents that were approved are potentially uh, being combined um, and going to be looked at. I think another important aspect that will be uh, becoming more and more commonly used in in the studies is um, the adaptation of new uh, clinical trial endpoints for efficacy. Traditionally, complete response has been the most commonly used endpoint. The complete response with incomplete count recovery has become used uh, frequently in the past. But now that we have more active agents, I think there is a lot of interest in looking at MRD negative CR or majorable residual disease and detectability because there are multiple studies that show that when you are MRD negative, while not everybody is cured, however, that correlates with significantly prolonged survival. So it potentially could serve as a surrogate endpoint in many of the new and upcoming uh, trials. Um, we have actually also some data suggesting that the use, for example, of, of um, myeloablative conditioning uh, for patients who have majorable residual disease seem to improve their outcomes, while the use of non-myeloablative conditioning in those patients don't seem to be particularly helpful. So we are already seeing some data to, that suggests some action on the MRD um, at uh, level of the patients could potentially improve outcomes uh, of patients. I think we are going to a situation where we are going to follow the multiple myeloma paradigm in which therapies are being introduced, uh, moving away from intensive chemotherapy to more targeted uh, therapies. 
more use of oral agents, doublets and triplets, um, more, the more um, stringent early endpoints such as MRD negative uh, CR outpatient therapy. We are seeing more and more outpatient therapy for older patients with acute myeloid uh, leukemia. And the concept of total therapy and sequencing. So it's not only the use of uh, uh, basically of uh, one clinical trial looking at one agent, but trying to understand what is the best sequencing and how we can optimize um, the survival of our patients using the best sequencing. And also, the, as mentioned earlier, um, the use of maintenance strategies, which have been a, a main uh, part of the treatment of patients with multiple um, myeloma and other hematologic malignancies. And now they have finally, uh, we have a, a drug, uh, the oral azacitidine, which approves, improves survival uh, for patients post-intensive treatment, uh, but also looking at other maintenance strategies for patients who have flat-free positivity and post-allogenic bone marrow uh, transplantation. In terms of the a number of agents that are being tested. There is a large number of uh, new agents that are being tested in, in, in this space, uh, including targeted agents such as novel FLET3 inhibitors, novel IDH uh, inhibitors, but I think also importantly, uh, other immune therapies uh, such as bispecific T cell engagers, um, uh, antibody drug conjugates, CAR T cells. Um, I think all of those are. Uh, taking the management of AML into a new uh, place where we are going to have better outcomes. Uh, so I think the future is definitely looking better and better over time. And eventually, I think we are going to see the overall survival of patients with AML uh, continue to improve with time. Finally, we hear from John DePersio of Washington University on the next questions in CAR-based therapies. The greatest thing about CAR T-cell therapies is that you can make modifications and you can think outside the box and you can create uh, very novel approaches to enhance their function or increase their persistence or, uh, or reduce the toxicities by various kinds of uh, manipulations. And those actually can be generated and even tested uh, by individual investigators or labs without the necessity of uh, a large company. Now, obviously, developing these reagents for commercialization is a different issue. But unlike small molecule drugs, which are very hard to, for an individual lab to actually synthesize and make suitable for, uh, for um, uh, clinical investigation. This can be done um, by individual labs. It is expensive, but it still can be done by individual labs. So these kinds of modifications of CAR T cell approaches is going to be, um, you know, rapidly expanding. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that there are ways that uh, people are thinking about how to make CAR T cells better. Um, First of all, can we modify them so that when they do see their target, they're more effective at killing their target? 
Number two, can we generate CAR Ts that target more than one antigen so that antigen escape is less of a problem? Number three, can we actually modify or treat patients so that the CAR Ts persist and expand better in vivo? And number four, can we, again, treat the patient or modify the CAR Ts so that they have similar uh, cytotoxic effects against tumor cells, but the toxicity relating to um, CRS and neurotoxicity is mitigated or eliminated. And so I think these can be done um, by individual labs and investigators and are being done now. Um, CAR, uh, CAR Ts can be modified so that they not only um, uh, produce a CAR T, um, that targets, that re redirects these T cells to the target cells, but also can also be modified so that they, their response to engagement is enhanced so that there's better killing or more persistence, less exhaustion, uh, et cetera. Or, um, you know, we can identify various subsets of T cells that are the best starting population. And finally, you know, we haven't, um, ex, you know, um, explored uh, in a major way the use of other effector cells uh, for CAR T cell, um, uh, for CAR use, I should say. So everything so far has been focused on T cells, but obviously now there's lots of excitement for the use of NK cells, uh, INK T cells, um, activated NK cells, and even macrophages, or how to modify cellular therapy so you engage not only a T cell with its target, but bring in a macrophage to enhance um, opsonization or killing of the target as well. So th this is what we, I think we can look forward to, and, and the great thing is that lots of this stuff can be done in individual labs, and so there are many labs working on many different approaches, which is uh, going to result in a really rapidly expanding field and a very dynamic field in the future. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and join in on the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit VJHemonk.com for all the latest updates in the field.